Welcome to The Deep Dive. I'm your host, Philip McKenzie. I'm an anthropologist strategist with a focus on culture and humanity-centered design. I'm Brooklyn-born and Brooklyn-made. Every week, I will bring you guests from a wide variety of backgrounds who, despite their different areas of expertise, share traits in common. They aim high, push boundaries, and make things happen. Their experiences drive insights. On today's episode of The Deep Dive, I'm joined by Dr. Anna Stenros. She's a thought leader and architect with a doctorate in technology. She has over 25 years experience in creative leadership and strategic design. She is former design director at Cone Corporation and chief design officer of the city of Helsinki. She has had a professorship in creative leadership at the Aalto University, and currently she is a visiting lecturer at the Globus University in Tokyo and the Tagyokoka University of Technology. I probably butchered that, but we're going to keep going. She has participated as an expert in many different EU forums, and she was the member of the World Design Capital WDC 2022 Selection Committee by World Design Organization WDO. Currently, she is speaking, lecturing, writing, and mentoring. She's passionate about the nature smart city, positive urban futures, and the way of creative leadership. And she is someone that I enjoy early morning conversations with periodically. And it's a pleasure to have you back on the deep dive. How are you? Thank you, Philip. I'm I'm good when I can have a discussion with you. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, we're, I love that. <laughs> we're we're opening up some of our conversations to the general public and I um you know I was I was really excited like I told you to have you back on the show. You know, your your episode I, I believe was like in 2020. I feel like that's right. I could be a little bit wrong there. Yeah, I think it was in the end of 2020. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah it that sounds right. So we're gonna go with that. And and since then we've stayed in 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 um fellowship with one another. We've exchanged many emails, you've recommended books to me, you've recommended um, speakers to me. And like I said, we've had these these wonderful morning, morning for me, afternoon for you conversations that have always been such a delightful way to start my mornings when we do have those. So I'm excited for us to have this conversation. You know, you, you've been into and, and doing so many things. And I, I want to start kind of broad, and then we're going to get specific. Because I think this idea of creative leadership, is is a place where you're spending a, a lot of your time. You're thinking about this this way of creative leadership. And before we get into how you're thinking about it, why do you think it's important that we basically rethink leadership models? Well, I think that uh, leadership is a kind of um, thing that. Um you know, like a wine, when it gets older, it becomes better, <laughs> people say so. So in my mind, uh, leadership is something that is constantly uh, changing. It's maturing. Or if it doesn't, then you should be a little bit worried about it because it has to follow the times. It has to follow what is going on what kind of challenges we are facing, what is the sentiment of the time. And also, I think that we have to every now and then um, re-evaluate the values, reframe the questions, revitalize the systems, uh, redesign the organizations. 
everything uh, that has re in the beginning that relates uh, to leadership and especially creative leadership because creativity is not just for design or architecture or urban planning. No, I can see that every single uh, person can be a creative leader, at least uh, leading his or her own life. And, you know, it's, it's interesting that, you know, as I was recounting, we, we had our first conversation in, in 2020. And here we are, give or take by a couple of months, two years later. And because I've had the, the pleasure and the privilege of, of conversations with you beyond our, our formal recording, I could see that there's been sort of a, a transformation, a, a way that, that you've been reframing things, right? The, the re comes up a lot. So what do you think has been going on in, in sort of your backdrop that is that has put you into a place to start to rethink and, and really redesign some of these um, leadership models? Well, first and foremost, um, I think that we all should understand that leadership, uh, it's not a role. It's the way, like Japanese say, there is the way of sword, the way of something. So it's the way in, in that respect. It's a lifetime journey that you uh, start. And uh, very early when I got my first uh, leadership position, actually, long, long time ago. <laughs> so when I was uh, going to see the, the person who was the chairman of the, the organization, uh, he actually uh, gave me a paper and said, okay, this is the contract and you can sign it now. But remember that leadership is a lonely journey. And if you can't tolerate solitary, so don't sign it. And I was, you know, sitting there and thinking, should I sign it? Should I not? <laughs> what was the message, actually? But then it went only a few uh, seconds and I signed it. But he was honest with me because he was an elderly man, the chairman. And he was honest with me because he knew that it's going to be a very solitary journey. So prepare your mindset for that. Of course, he was supporting me all the time. I spent some nine years in, in Design Forum Finland as a managing right, director. But during those years, every now and then I remember what he said, meaning that I have to make these decisions by myself. I have to make them by myself. And that's a kind of agreement that you are writing down. That's the real contract. People think that, wow, it's a contract for salary, it's a uh, contract for uh, power, contract for, you know, all that kind of goodies, but it's it's not. It's a different. And, you know, it's it's funny that you bring up this idea of um, loneliness, because I, I showed you the notes at the beginning and they kind of go quite long. And, um, and, and toward the end of this first page, because there is a back page of notes as well, um, I, I jotted down this idea. It's in one of the pieces you sent me of, of walking alone. And it kind of connects to the to the anecdote that you just that you just shared about this contract and getting this advice. And I and I was curious in in your thoughts about leadership, is it part of our meta-narrative to emphasize the solitary journey over a, a more communal journey or or way of leadership 
and I'm not I'm not sure if it is, you know, hence the question. Like what what do you think about that idea of the the solitary journey as a leader being one of these narratives that that we have? Is there a different way to think about leadership? Well, um I'm referring to the Japanese concept of hitoretabi, namely meaning that you are traveling alone. It's it's a it's a kind of lifetime thing that you can take a trip, you know, as uh, um, to somewhere. Really, you take a trip, uh, but it's a lonely, <laughs> lonely way. But um, I use it as a metaphor for learning because, in my mind, leadership is about learning. When I stated that it's re this re that, it means that you have to unlearn every now and then in order to relearn and upskill even yourself. And when you asked me in the beginning that, is it so that uh, when you saw that there's a certain type of transformation going on, well, from my perspective, I say yes, because I think that I'm now climbing to mountain. I used to sail, you know, and that was completely different thing. Storms come and go, <laughs> uh, literally and metaphorically. And um, I'm quite good uh, navigating. I know where I'm heading to as a leader and as a sailor. But on the other hand, now this climbing is a little bit different thing because it's, it's hard. And um, on the other hand, you sort of forget to look around the views, because you only focus to the path that you are taking up, 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 a little bit more up, up, and up. <laughs> and this kind of thing is usually solitary. But that happens in the end of a leadership journey. I just read about um, this, uh, What what's the lady? Um, the lady from, um, from um, Facebook? Oh, Sheryl Sandberg. Yeah, yeah. Sarah Sandberg, that she uh, left face, uh, Facebook yep. or Meta, how they call it today, I, I suppose. And I was wondering mm, why. But now when I consider her journey as a leader, I can see that there are several faces and she's moving to the next level, to the next phase. She will start something of her own. She has been orchestrating, you know, something that somebody else has composed. And uh, like a, you know, uh, like a conductor in front of the audience and, and doing all the good things and tricks and everything so that the whole orchestra is playing well and full and the sound is rich. But now... In the next phase, she's more becoming like a composer doing her own thing. And that's why people quit the leadership positions, because they have learned everything there. They want to move ahead. They need new challenges. They are challenging themselves. They are learning by themselves. They are even reskilling, like I said, themselves. So she's moving ahead. And, you know, it's, it's interesting to think about these examples. Um, you know, I think Sheryl Sandberg is is a good one. I'll kind of leave the politics of her leadership aside <laughs> for for a, a moment, but she's a, a worthy example as, as we talk about about transitions and and also metaphors. You know, we we started this conversation kind of thinking through some meta some metaphors, and I and I think about you know my own career journey, and and I don't think this is that um, unique. 
when you work in certain fields, there's a, a lot of examples that come through, or a lot of metaphors rather that come through, you know, the military, right? Like we're storming a beach, we're taking a hill, you know, we're doing all these particular types of things, you know, we we're in a boot camp, you know, all of these ideas and metaphors kind of come from this very hierarchical um, military framing, not exclusively, but let's say mostly. And and that comes with it a certain set of values, right? I think our, our metaphors share our passed down values. And, you know, now what, what you're describing seems that it comes with a completely different set of values, at least from how I'm reading it. So I, I want to give you an opportunity to kind of let's spend some more time talking about this this metaphor, this this idea of both journey and and also the concept of of gardening. You know, leadership as a garden is something we've we've talked about privately now a couple of times, even before we started recording. <laughs> it can't, it kind of came up a little bit before I hit the record button. So I, I want to give you an opportunity to talk about this gardening and and what the values centered in that are? Well, like you said, this idea um, and set of values that comes from a military context to leadership and to organizations. Um, I have lived that through <laughs> during my years uh, at Kone. They were good years. I think that that was the most important university I never ever attended. But at, at the same time, it was uh, very unitary in uh, culturally and even uh, how people behaved, what they were. Now I just uh, finished um, cleaning up my closet. <laughs> and it was a kind of memory lane. All those <laughs> grayish, blackish <laughs> jackets and trousers, you know. And I thought, oh my goodness, yeah, this is my military look. <laughs> My corporate military look, literally. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. I know. Even you just describing that, I could picture what you mean. Yeah. We've all seen it, right? It's like every G seven or G twenty photo op. Yeah, is what we're describing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I still remember when there was a chainsaw CEO at Kone. You know the the previous one he retired and the new came in and um, I uh, I came back from the summer holiday that was a few weeks and then I, I was in the uh, canteen uh, during the lunchtime and I was looking around and thinking what has changed what is the change here all the same people all the same food sun was shining and I was worried what has changed and then by coincidence, the new CEO came in from the glass doors and I noticed, ah, he doesn't have a tie. And I realized that nobody, nobody had a tie. Unlike in previous years, they all wear tie because the CEO, he had a tie. But it was just, you know, a small, tiny detail, but it, it told the full story that everybody was following the leader. So in my mind, this kind of um, very um, uh, close, tight community system without any diversity within it can't survive today anymore. 
because leadership should be more like, like I have said to you, like a gardener job that you enable, you help people, you make them uh, blossom, let's say, or you help them to thrive. You you sort of enable them to be uh, to become the best versions of themselves in the end. I mean that it's completely different viewpoint. And uh, during this um, spring, when uh, while I was um, having these uh, lectures to Globis, I actually asked the students when I was talking about leadership as a gardening thing, and I asked every single person to draw a flower for the next time. Oh, I can see their faces. Oh, not a good idea. I said, okay, everybody can draw a flower. It's not a big deal. So please draw the flower and send it to me before the next lecture. And then I compile out of those 30 plus beautiful flowers that they made. And they even created stories related to that. While I was traveling here or there, or this came to my mind because da-da-da, you know, they have wonderful stories. I compiled a picture, several pictures where that were full of those flowers and how different they were. And I said, see, each individual, when you give them you know, the freedom and the space and time and energy, they bloom in different ways. And that diversity is the source for creativity. And, you know, after that session, they wrote to me that several of them, it's incredible. Now I understand the power of diversity and creativity after this. I can't forget it anymore. And that's why I think that even... um, in leadership, we should uh, think out of the box, do different kind of actions, inspire people in different ways. Because I see uh, teaching also uh, a leadership position and a learning position, both. And, you know, when, you, when, you, when we walk through these ideas, a lot of it seems like common sense, right? But a, a lot of um, common sense isn't that common, right? So we're confronted with... You know some some very basic things. There's ego, right? Like as you yeah. were as you were kind of going going through your example, I, I jotted down more notes, and and so one of the things that popped up right away was like ego. Then the other thing that popped up was incentivizing, right? That the a lot of the traditional leadership models that we have today, whether in practice or in metaphor, do not incentivize. Um, making individuals blossom, mm-hmm. right? They they incentivize making individuals produce something, right? And 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 I don't and I said that very purposefully because it's very different from saying even it doesn't even incentivize productivity. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it it just incentivizes people producing something. Yeah. You know, I I've I found in my experience most people are incredibly unproductive. Um, even though something gets done at the end of the quote unquote day, right? At the end of some period, something is is created that everyone says, Look, we did this, right? And then you look at it and you're like, spend all your time doing that. It seems in- incredibly unproductive. <laughs> but nonetheless, you know, how do we, you know, contextually wrap ourselves around the, the ego-driven parts of, of this and the lack of incentive to shift the way we think 
about leadership, right? Because I also think ego is something that we're we're taught, those kind of things, right? Well, I think that um, if you follow the leadership steps one by one, if you don't have to jump over, I think that it comes naturally that uh, your ego is not that important anymore in the end. And uh, you sort of mature into a point where you become an encourager in the end, you know, that you encourage other people rather than criticize. You support them uh, to achieve what they want to. So it's a kind of idea that when you start as a young uh, leader, usually it's good that you have some kind of correct competence in any area because that gives you um, enough uh, stamina (laughs) sort of to challenge the status quo. Otherwise, if you don't have any correct competence, if you are generalist in everything, it's very difficult to challenge anything. So first you have to have a good root, you know, and kind of something that you can grow. And then the second phase is that you are really growing and you are cultivating your intelligence, including emotional and natural uh, intelligence. And uh, by doing so, you also um, start to collaborate with other people. You find partners, you are networking, and you uh, realize how you can achieve more when there is a diverse group of people with uh, from different disciplines, for example. And Also, in that case, you start to learn that, okay, I don't have to know everything, even though if I'm leading this group or team, uh, but I don't have to know everything because I can rely on trustworthy people who know things better than I do in their special field. So you, you already start to see that it's not about me, but it's about us. And then in the next level, when you move into that conductor position, uh, so um, it's it's more like finding the right purpose. And uh, uh, also you uh, start to see that there are bigger picture than what you are doing, that you are serving something that is far more bigger than your role or the role of the organization. Because if you select the purpose right and if you have the uh, right culture, and set of values, you really make it bloom, the whole organization. And then again, uh, of course, everybody is applauding uh, to the conductor. But on the other hand, like I said, many people, when they are in a high position in their 55, uh, 50 plus years, they step voluntarily down because they want to start something of their own. They want to compose their own song, so to speak or they want to start to, to build their own garden in their own way. And that's part of character building, because you want to give a legacy uh, that is uh, living after you. And uh, that's usually when people become thought leaders, because they are free spirits and, and they, they think in their own way. And then finally, in that fifth level, you are sort of ripening and then you start teaching and mentoring and you become an encourager because you want to find the right legacy. So I think that if if this happens naturally, then the less ego you have in the end than in the beginning. But then if you are not able somehow 
to, to go into the next level. You are just drumming your own echo, you know? A- absolutely. And and I want to share like sort of the, the process. I did write those notes down. So I'm going to take full advantage of, of my handwriting. Um, you know, <laughs> Soshin, and I'm going to give give me um, grace for any mispronunciations. You know, Soshin would be that seedling learning phase, um, Zanshin growing and unlearning, Munshin or Munshin perhaps, nurturing and relearning, um, Fudoshin blooming and upskilling, and Senshin, which is ripening and reskilling. So you kind of walked us through that. And so I'm just giving the titles to, to what you shared with us. And I do want to go back a little bit to, to the beginning because you said a few things that I that I want to really maybe go a little deeper on, which is the like trusting in in folks, having a high level of of trust. And maybe I'm having my own therapy moment and and sort of thinking of, about different organizations I've either been a part of or folks that I've worked with. And I've I found trust to be really low in most of the places and, and projects that I've worked on, you know, and so with without trust, which is something that I think should be freely given. So I know there's the adage, you know, trust is earned. I actually don't believe that. I think trust is an active decision. You either trust or you don't. There's no earning it. Just my editorial. But I find that like a lot of organizations and a lot of people in organizations, from a hierarchical perspective, they're leaders. Maybe they're not leaders in the way we're talking about these models, but they're they're at least titled leaders, right? They're SVP of this, EVP of that, president of this, whatever, whatever, they're actually very fearful. And their fear makes them want to control everything. Like, I think they feel like they'll be less fearful if they can control everything. So they tend not to then trust anyone to do anything because they're afraid of losing control. And then it becomes this cycle, right? And I've, I've found that to be more prevalent than not. Right. So I'm, I'm, I'm curious about how do we intervene? How do we use this process to intervene, to remove the fear and the control from the, from the process? Right. If I'm thinking about a garden and, you know, I've not been a farmer or anything like that, you can't wake up every day afraid of the locust, right? Like, (laughs) you know, like you just, that just can't be a way to have a productive farm, right? Or afraid of Whatever it is, you can't be afraid of drought. You can't be afraid of flooding. Can't be afraid of locusts, and it just feels like everything in a non-context of that is fear-based. From how I how I've experienced it, so I'm curious as to your reflections on that soliloquy, and then also your thoughts on your experiences as it pertains to fear, control, and trust. Well, like you said, that um, trust is a decision, yes, in the first place. But then, as a second step, you have to earn it. And as a third step, that is, that is a conclusion. You first have, uh, have to give it to somebody that trust. Then the one who receive it should earn it. And then the third thing is, based on what happened, either you uh, give the freedom to continue or you increase the control, right? So 
I didn't understand this whole system when I went to Kone because I was so naive <laughs> coming from the um, more like an organization, a very small design organization to the corporate world. And um, I only realized when I, after 10 years being there and when I left Kone, I met the the uh, old uh, CEO that was traveling with me all the 10 years. And I met him uh, afterwards. And I said, hello, Matti. I want to thank you now. And he was a little bit startled. What is going on? <laughs> and I said, listen, you gave me all that freedom and you never, ever interfered my vision. That's why we accomplished so much design-wise. And he said, well, yes, of course not. But he was very pleased. But I only understood it later afterwards because I, I went to another organization that was based on controlling of everything, namely the city organization. In every level, there there's so much control that you hardly couldn't breathe in the end. So I realized what kind of freedom I had. But I also earned it because we did a great job together with my team and we received design awards, international design awards from the very beginning to the end from different parts of the world, for example. So, um, yes, somebody has to give you in first place that trust or freedom and then you have to earn it and then you can go ahead. But uh, I think that what I learned from that experience intuitively was that I did the same to my people in my team. I gave them trust. I gave them challenges to grow. And then I just followed. And if everything was okay, I gave even more freedom for them. Because from the first day, I thought that, okay, any single day I want to lead this organization, the design uh, team should keep going on. So I built it in that way that it wasn't dependent on me only, not dependent on my ego, <laughs> not dependent on me in any ways. I had a wingman uh, who was very good. I had a second wing, wing woman who was uh, as good, you know. So I collected people who were independent and uh, I gave them a lot of freedom because I didn't want them to leave the organization when they learned everything there. So it's also what I learned in the very beginning. I was reading, I can't remember what book is, it was, but I think it was my second year at Kone and, and I was reading about that creative people are never ever loyal to organizations. They are loyal for their vision. And that's exactly what Matti gave me, the CEO. He gave me the freedom to my own vision. That's why I spent the 10 years to build the whole design from the scratch to the top. I mean, this, I mean, I, I obviously am a believer and I think that we we do, and, and this is why I'm, I'm trying to spend so much time on it because I know at, at least from, maybe it's an American way of doing things, the the, the idea of of nurturing in the way that you have described it the, even in environments where they they talk about like freedom and you know we want you to be creative, they really don't want you to be creative, right? Like, I mean, I, I yeah. could think of I could think of so many organizations that people will say, 
oh, well, of course they're they're creative because the branding tells you that, right? Mm-hmm. And then when I talk to people within these organizations, they're like, nope, this is, and it's, so, you know, I'm not going to name them all, but they're, they're big household names, right? Like they're, they're huge corporations that everybody would know. And, and, and I would say in a couple of cases, they're, they are definitely more than just corporations in the way people think about them. Right. But yet, when I when I talk to folks that work there, even if they're working in creative capacities, they're like, "Yeah, they ain't trying to hear it. It's it's not creative at all, right?" So, you know, it's it's not to have the therapy, like I kind of jokingly said before, but it it is to try to think through how do we change these metaphors, how do we change these these meta narratives in the same way, you know, you you cite um, Dr. Nawatney, for example, and and she's someone that I interviewed on the show based on your recommending her work to me, right? And she talks about these meta-narratives. Yeah. And and so how do we create or foster meta-narratives that center the types of ideas that that we are talking about? Meaning they're freer from ego, they're more about nurturing, they're introducing the ideas of diversity in, in different capacities, because again, there's huge pushback against these ideas. You know, like I think often when I'm engaged with with people like yourself and I've kind of self-selected this this group of humans that I kind of want to take this journey through life with, I'm like, oh yeah, of course, everyone thinks like we do. And it's like, no, they don't, right? <laughs> they don't want to make themselves in a way dispensable because they feel their power is in being indispensable, right? So they hoard information, they hoard resources, they don't do the things that you've described and it's so prevalent. So I'm, I'm trying to figure out like, how do we make this garden rather than this battlefield? <laughs> yeah, I think it's a, it's a relevant question because I, I think it was um, well, 2007, some years ago, when I was uh, I was a newcomer at Kone, and because I was the few uh, female in technology, I got a lot of in, uh, invitation to to speak in different places. So I was speaking for the technology industry people, and it was of course the title was innovation, and I. I stated that, uh, well, all the companies, they, they want innovative people. They want creative people to join forces to make innovation happen. But then I showed a slide uh, with um, Einstein showing his tongue, the famous picture, you know. <laughs> so when you see the real creatives, you don't want to have them in your organization. You think they are troublemakers. And that was so true. And it's still today it is true because they they don't know how to control those people. Because, no, but you <laughs> creative people, they are change makers. They are challenging the status quo. And that's their power. And if you give them that freedom, like I said, miracles will happen in the organization. But you have to, uh, of course, select the right people and give them right tasks. But still, I mean that um, they are, by nature, they are change makers. 
And um, I was thinking that uh, when you refer to Helga Novotnia meta-narratives, and we all know that the prevailing meta-narrative before pandemics was the narrative of progress, you know, like she said. And it, it, it's so true. And then I think that we have been living a kind of smaller-scale meta-narrative of innovation during the past 20 years or so. But now we have to move on. It's not enough anymore. I think it's the time for the narrative of nature or nature smart. See what I mean? We, we have to start to consider nature first in everything what we do. This is perfect segue because I, I do want to spend time there, right? So okay. that's my second part of my notes. Um, All right. But be- before we get there, because I, I do want to, <laughs> I do want to kind of talk a little bit about the the meta narrative, and I agree it's been progress. It's also been innovation. I would probably, however, put an a, a overarching narrative that superimposes itself on the other two, at least in the way they're framed, which is capitalism, right? Mm-hmm. I think when we're talking about progress, when we're talking about innovation, by and large, not exclusively, but by and large, we're really talking about market-based progress and innovation, right? We're we're tracing our success as a species through successful market interventions that are the future, quote unquote. Right. So at one point we had typewriters. Now we have laptops. Our phones were once tethered to the wall. Now we have cell phones and so on and so on and so on. Right. I'm giving very basic examples. And and why this is troubling to me, you know, so again, editorial is progress has progress in that sense has come at an at an incredible cost to not just our, our natural systems, which gives us a chance to segue into the nature smart city and these ideas, but it's, it's come at a tremendous cost to people, you know, indigenous black and brown people around the world have, have paid the price for progress, right? Because of the capitalist model of extraction and exploitation and all the things that are, that are part of it. So as we think through meta narratives, is there an opportunity to center nature in the way that that you've talked about it and move away from a a capitalist narrative, which is really individual narrative, right? It's market in the whole, but it's individual in the abstract, right? It's, look, Steve Jobs did this thing and this person, you know what I mean? So how do we, as we shift into nature, take into account the the capitalist meta-meta narrative? (laughs) If we're going (laughs) to... Put it, put it on top, right? Wow, this is becoming now very, very complex. Um, yeah, we do that here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But going back to this uh, first, this idea of nature smart that I had built now uh, during the past two years, actually, um, the idea came uh, from a very simple uh, notion that people are looking for happiness. But, you know, happiness... Uh, as such, is not that interesting. But when you think about what it could be, like um, eudaimonia, 
for example, like Aristotle said that it's uh, living and doing well, uh, meaning that you have to actively do something for other people and uh, live based on the virtues in order to become happy in the end of your life or something like that. So um, there is a point there that uh, if we are looking for happiness, but if, if we have a broken world, it, it doesn't happen. So I started to look around and I noticed that there is this human nature connection that has broken very strongly. And uh, I started to, to deep dive, so to speak, into that human nature connection. And that's how I found the idea that a gardener who has this concept or theory of multiple intelligences, you know, that uh, there is this musical, there is this abstract, mathematical, etc., and so on. So he added later one more naturalistic intelligence, meaning that People, some people, they are more sensitive to read patterns from the nature, to see the differences between plants. And also those people, they are able to see both the forest and the trees. And educated as an architect, that was an insight for me, because what architect is doing we are zooming in and out all the time. We have the bigger picture, the urban plan, then we zoom into a building scale, even the tiny details of the building. So I thought that this might be something that uh, might help me to understand how to achieve a balance, you know, that might lead to happiness. Uh, sounds a little bit naive now, but it was, I mean, it, it was a real thing for me to understand that. And then I started my journey uphill, <laughs> so to speak, in order to see a bigger picture. And, uh, and I think that the more I traveled and the more I started to learn uh, things from the nature, for example, the wonderful idea of biophilia, and uh, biophilic architecture, even biophilic cities, and all these kind of things, I started to understand that there is a natural way, for example, where the buildings should be based on the, uh, you know, how the human uh, beings, how they have survived. So um, the idea was that you are on the uphill looking over forest towards the sea because that was the the premium position to uh, to see far away and also you have fish and you have all the goodies from the forest uh, to eat etc etc so i started to see that how we have rejected those natural good things that were in balance not just with uh, in harmony with nature but in harmony also with uh, as a community like you said that uh, that these native people this in in how you call it indigenous 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 it's a yeah. word impossible for a finnish speaking person indigenous <laughs> uh, 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 communities how they were living in harmony with nature how strong their connection to nature was. And now I have happily noticed that there are even, um, you know, conferences in architecture, for example, that has this theme, how we can learn from those uh, native people, you know, 
how they build things, how they respect this and that. So I think it's it's a wonderful thing that we we go back to the roots again because we all share that uh, idea that what is the best for human beings in the very very beginning, based on this idea of bi- biophilia and our innate connection to the nature. So, and, well, this journey that I, I has taken uh, following the idea of Nature Smart has led also to funny things. I have started to learn the language of flowers and um, Hanakotoba, they call it in Japan, because it's a very, very old ancient uh, art form there. And I think it's so lovely because... In, in uh, nowadays, when there is so much pain here, we had the war in Europe, we had the pandemics all over the world, there is a crisis of food and everything. So um, I thought that, well, the language of flowers, that's not offensive. Every person loves the language of flowers. So that's why I asked the student to draw a flower, because it's a gesture of uh, kindness at the same time. Yeah, and and you and you post flowers on on Twitter. I I, I follow your account, and I oh, see. Oh, okay, that you, yeah, I do that. Yeah, yeah. Butterflies and flowers. Yeah. yeah, butterflies and flowers. It's it's yeah. a it's but a it's very a, good palate cleanser. <laughs> yeah, but you know, one one of the most respected uh, character of a leader is to give hope in desperate times. Is to give hope for people in desperate times, and I think that if if I give a flower. Uh, you know, here and there, if I speak the language of flower, like I said, at least in my mind, it gives a little bit hope. I hope so. <laughs> no, no, it's 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 true. And it's it's something that I know I personally try to be better at. Those who know me would argue, you're not very good at that at all. But I try <laughs> to be a little bit more Winnie the Pooh and a little less Eeyore. Right. But it it doesn't always work out that way. But I but I'm at least aware of it, you know. And when we when we started thinking about, you know, the nature smart city, you know, I think there there was a quote which I jotted down, which comes from your dad, actually. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) Which is which says, um, to be honest, we have not succeeded in creating, designing, and building an environment where people enjoy themselves and feel free and happy. Right. And I think as a as an organizing principle, that's a that's a great place to start. And, you know, you have this this matrix where you kind of talk about the local, the connected, the open, the small and cities are, are interesting for a number of reasons. One, I live in a city. Right. So I'm, I've kind of pro city as 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 one as one can be. And I'm also very interested in the the power of of place quote unquote place meaning very much tied to indigenous thinking that we are uniquely tethered to a place in time right like me having grown up in new york has tethered me to a particular way of thinking and being same thing with the way you grew up in in finland right even though not in a necessarily in a big city but what have you so i say all that to say how do we think about all of that that connective tissue between things being smaller, being more open, being local, being connected. Because when I read read that and I think about the the quote from your dad, 
about building environments, it is very much tied to place, which can be physical geography or, or maybe it can be more than that, right? It can be community. So how do you think about, about tying those things together when you think about the nature of smart city? Well, um, <laughs> interesting that you pick up this topic because 30 years ago, when I was defending my doctoral dissertation, <laughs> it was one uh, journey as such, and I started it from the theory of space, namely the elements, how you connect uh, different elements of space, and I ended up to a notion of place, the meaning of place, in the end of my dissertation. And uh, so um, I think that uh, it was a kind of idea that first I thought that it's all about how you put things together, elements together. But in the end, I um, started to read more about phenomenology that was very popular at that time or trendy and so on. And I started to understand that the place is the thing how, uh, what kind of places there are, because they are meaningful and they are important. They are anchor places in a real sense in our lives. And um, in the same way, when I started to read about all kinds of things um, about this human nature connection, you know, so I learned that there are several ways of human nature connection. It's not that only that you go to the woods, and you are there walking for a while and then you are coming back and you feel refreshed, right? No, uh, it's, it's not only that. But one element especially struck me when they were talking about human nature connection was that you have memories of natural places that you have shared with someone, that you have been there with your friends or with your family, that there is this connection of a between people and between the natural setting where they have been. And I love this idea, you know, and if you consider, you probably you, at least I have this kind of natural places that has nurtured, nurtured also this community spirit, not just being in a wild nature as such. And uh, also I come back to the idea that when you are talking about this local, for example, I love the Ezio Manzini's theory, this SLUC theory, small, local, open, com, um, connected. This idea how the social innovations, for example, how they can bloom in different parts of the world. And, uh, and now what I have learned during the, this recent year uh, or during the recent months while we are having the war here, in Europe, and there is suddenly a shortage of everyday things, you know, could be this or that or anything. And we have realized what kind of networks we have, where actually the wood comes to the furniture industry. It comes from, you know, Ukraine. Where does the wheat come come uh, to the bread we, we are buying in Finland? Actually, it came from Ukraine. And so on. And also the, during the pandemics, you couldn't get uh, some kind of computer pieces from here or there. And uh, you have to wait for things. And suddenly this globalization, it has become visible. 
We have taken it for granted, but now we can see that they are good traveling from here to there and also people traveling from here to there. And I can see that we, we are moving towards post-global post world in respect that we are looking for much more micro-local issues because they feel more secure and uh, we know what is the source, for example. And many, many people, they have come back to the idea that we should nurture the, the localities around us. Absolutely. But it's a long way. It's a long way. But I think that that is also when you mentioned about the idea of uh, uh, capitalism related mm -hmm. to this meta narrative of progress, you know. So I can see that this might be the way out of this, you know, global capitalism, this kind of bubble that we have lived. And we, we haven't really seen what is going on there. We have just taken it as a progress, you know, in the yep. name of progress. But now when we come back to the micro-local issues, things, people, communities, we can see, okay, that lady is uh, baking the bread there. This person is doing this, this and that, you know, the potatoes, they come from there, etc., etc. So I think that it's, um, it's also a lesson to learn for us. And uh, we, we pay more attention who is doing all these things for us and where they are made. Yeah, absolutely. You know, a lot of these, um, these systems only work when things are optimized, right? Yeah, I, I, yeah. I think about, um, I was remarking about this the other day, like, you know, it was all the way, the rage in business school to talk about, you know, JIT just in time, right? Like you yeah. wanted less inventory, you wanted to make the thing and get it out. And and now that we we live at a, at a time of, um, you know, what I like to say, poly crisis, we, we see that maybe that isn't the way to go, right? That we we need to to have different kind of stress tests in, involved in, in all of this, you know? I, I wanna ask, one more question before we get to the final the final two segments of the show, you know, off the dome and the drop. And I, you know, this really jumped out at me as I was reading some of your material and some of the things that you shared with me. And maybe because we've had so so many conversations, you you make this remark, thoughts and words are a gift, right? Mm. The way we we and, and that really, like I said, it, it stuck with me. So I want to give you an opportunity to maybe tie our, our leadership, our, 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 our day of nature, smart city, how those overlap with one another into this idea of, you know, our thoughts and words are a gift. You know, as someone who talks for a living, I agree, but I want to hear your, your ideas on that. And then we'll get to the final two segments of the show, Off the Dome and The Drop. Okay. <laughs> well, uh, thoughts and words, yes, they, they are a gift. I mean that we, we probably take too much for granted in our lives. Like I said, that you were referring something that I was, uh, that my father said, because when I, I have started to write now the new things, so it, it happens to me that I remember, because he's an architect professor emeritus, so it ha happens that, uh, that I started to remember what he has said 20, 30 years ago and how ahead of times he has been. And then I started to understand that, well, maybe there has been an impact on me 
see what I mean, that I didn't realize at that time. And I think that these are kind of, these these things that he has said to me or I have read uh, from his uh, talks or his texts, I think that they have been also gifts in a way that they have shown me something. And if I remember all those people from whom I have learned something beautiful during my life, uh, I, I owe a lot of them, not just for my father, but many professors or that uh, chairperson who said to me that, listen, Anne, it's a lonely journey. Now you can reconsider if you want to take it or not. <laughs> so they have all given me something highly valuable that, that even today, if I'm in a crossroads, you know, I rely on them. And then I realized the further I'm climbing on the mountain by myself, I have noticed that now in this age, many people, younger people, they approach me that asking advice prof, uh, in, in their professional career. And I, I start to see myself also that maybe I can give this, you know, my ideas, my comments or my learnings as gifts to others. So um, I always remember this beautiful story about Amelia Earhart because in, in her old, uh, quite old age, she married, as you remember. I think he was a businessman or something like that. But then she took, uh, took to her final uh, flight uh, where she never returned. And before she left there, uh, she wrote a beautiful uh, a letter to her uh, husband. And she said there that if I'm not coming back, don't worry, don't be sad, because there will uh, come more women who will finish my uh, journey in the end. And I think that this, uh, this idea that thoughts and words, they are kind of gifts. They are something that you give to the next generation or next one you know, and they carry it on and then they pass it to the next one. And that's how the, the hopefully the wisdom is accumulating somehow, you know, that it's not me. I'm, I'm just passing this vis wisdom with my interpretation to the next one. Absolutely. So, so and um, if I'm thinking about uh, this idea nature, nature smart or nature wisdom, I recently learned about a very nice word that I'm using now currently. And you should not consider yourself as an entrepreneur, but as an ecopreneur. And this kind of play with words, reframing the question, reframing the, the whole context, actually. It's also thinking in the same way that, that um, this kind of words that I read, they are gifts for me to understand suddenly something from a completely uh, new perspective. So I gave a task for these young students uh, uh, at Clobis to create a business uh, in uh, 2030 that is based on the idea of entrepreneurship. Wonderful. You know, uh, there were six uh, groups uh, of five or six people, and four of them took the food crisis as a focus of their business model. 
and they were amazing. Even one group they in um, they interviewed uh, the elderly people in Japanese countryside and uh, reflected what's going on there. And they stay, uh, said uh, while they were presenting the final work that probably they will pilot, they will get an opportunity to pilot it there in Japan. And I thought, wonderful. I mean, I said to the students that, that I trust on you, I count on you. You are doing a wonderful job. You are the ones who are going to save the world. Absolutely. It's not oldies like me. No. No, no I just <laughs> like us. the thing for them. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, these are these are gifts, right? And we and we do carry this wisdom intergenerationally. It it flows like a river, you know. And there's lots of wonderful ways that that we can think about it. And I think that's a that's a great way to to do our work, to carry on our mission is that we're all, we're all sharing, right? We're all sharing, we're all nurturing, we're all gardening in our, in our own ways. I'm going to try to make, make this take the place of all the planting of the flags and storming the beaches and all the rest of those metaphors that just don't work for me. Um, So I want to, I want to get us to off the dome, which is just a, a couple of quick questions. The first thing that comes to mind. So these are meant to be fun and playful and all that good stuff. So thinking about the nature smart city and the principles of it, what city, if you can choose any city in the world to test model the, the principles of the nature smart city and, and, and make it come into fruition, what city would you choose? Oh, my goodness. Can I name anything I want to? <laughs> any, any city. They, they said, look, we're giving you carte blanche to enact the principles and the ideology of the nature smart city. And you can choose any city in the world as your, as your canvas. What's your city? <sighs> this is a tough one. This is all. I do that sometimes I too. I mean, I, I can't even consider my favorite city. <laughs> Come on, <laughs> help me now. <laughs> what one can do? Oh, my goodness. Um, maybe, yes, I will arrange a competition. I will arrange a competition. Who has the best idea? And then I will pick the best one. <laughs> okay, I'm going to give you this one. <laughs> Because you kind of hacked the question in order to move around it, yeah. you know. <laughs> but fair enough. You injected some innovation into my question to kind of skirt around it a little bit. So I'm gonna, give, uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm gonna give you credit for that one. Okay, okay. one point. <laughs> one point. <laughs> so the, far, <laughs> the the second question is: We've been talking about gardening, right? Yeah, and. As, as much as gardening is as something that sometimes people can think of as solitary, it can be a community thing. So describe who would who you would want as an, a gardening partner. And it doesn't have to be a, like the print, the characteristics of that person. Like, who do you think would make a good person to garden with? Well, I learned gardening from my grandma, but she has passed away. But uh, I still owe uh, everything I know about gardening for her whether it's uh, flowers or vegetables, because I, I was her uh, helping her when I was hmm. like five years old or something like that. But on the other hand, if I want to, if uh, today, if I want to do gardening, I would love to do it with a sensei, you know, Zen gardener, hmm. very old, a solid person who knows everything about gardening. 
Yeah? Could be even a male one, yes. But then I also want to have lots of children around him. Okay. Yeah. That's critical. Yeah, because he or she will be like a hub tree, you know, mother mm-hmm. tree, nurturing the, the little ones and telling them how to to grow everything in the best way. Okay, that's awesome. I like that. So another point. Okay, good. <laughs> and and this is the final question, and it's kind of a silly one, but I like to do these would you rather type of questions, right? And so thinking about travel and movement, and, and forget about the fact, I'm using miles per hour, as I understand you guys use kilometers, but just, okay, <laughs> you know, frame it however you want, all right? Okay. So would you rather run at 100 miles per hour, and that's very fast, or would you rather fly at 10 miles per hour, which is not as fast? <laughs> oh, you know, um, uh, the eagle, the sea eagle. That's uh, my soul animal. The other one is a red fox. I don't know what they have in common. But, <laughs> but you feel an affinity for those two animals. Yeah, but nevertheless, uh, I would love to fly on the top of the mountain. Definitely, okay. definitely. No running. That foxy life, I, I left it already. <laughs> okay. I'm going to fly in the next one. <laughs> okay, so we're taking flight and we're we're taking the eagle over the fox then. Yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. All yeah. right. See, nice, nice and painless. I mean, three but, points. By the way, now you owe me one question. You have to answer to my question. What is okay. your power animal? Another another twist. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You've turned the tails. Yeah. Um, your power animal. Yeah. Huh. Your spiritual I, animal. Yeah, mm-hmm. this is what this is what I always go with, even though it's weird because I don't really have the playful personality, but I always like jokingly say like the otter, you know, like the sea otter. Oh, okay. Yeah, because we have kind of similar mustache going on. <laughs> you know. <laughs> so if I have to choose one, I always I always go with that, you know. And they and they pretty much play all day, right? So it's like a <laughs> pretty good existence right even though i'm not much of a swimmer i'm not a swimmer at all i'm more of a sit on a beach guy but still yeah they have like this pretty idyllic life right and you know we shared a mustache so it's pretty cool. yeah okay cool <laughs> <laughs> so now we're gonna get to the drop and and the drop is just an opportunity for us to share something or some things with our listeners that we think they should be aware of so i have one drop so i'll go first and it's a, a, a new animated show. I like to say animated because it makes it sound, you know, more highbrow than it probably is. It's just a cartoon. And it's um it's here in the US is on Disney or Disney Plus. It could be on something else globally. I always like to put that out there. But it's a show that I've been enjoying over the past, I don't know, maybe three weeks or so, called the Owl Academy. Owl like the animal. Okay. And it's just a, a really cute episodic animated show. I don't know. I just fell into it. I, I was seeing it on Twitter. Like I would wake up early in the morning on Saturday and I would see it was trending on Twitter. Right. Mm-hmm. And any show that's trending on Twitter isn't trending just because four or five-year-olds are watching it. Right. So I was like, <laughs> somehow there's a community of adults that are really into this show called Owl Academy. Maybe it's parents watching with their kids or whatever the case might be. And so I got curious and I checked it out. Absolutely love it. It's, um, a story of a, of a young Latina girl who, instead of going to summer camp, 
gets sucked into this like magical world where she now is spending her time. So her, her mom thinks she's at summer camp, but she's really in this like magical world and she's learning how to, to be a witch. And it's all about like acceptance and making friends and just all these really cool concepts that never seem to go out of style. So I've totally fallen in love with the Owl Academy and that is my drop. Okay. Sounds good. All right. And now... Uh... You're up. Okay. <laughs> what could it be? Oh... <laughs> uh... Oh my goodness. Ah, you know, the problem is that I haven't uh, read too much recently because I have been writing. But uh, like I said, that I highly, highly recommend everybody to learn a little bit about Hanakotoba, the language okay. of flowers, and their symbolic meaning in Japanese culture. Because they open up a new, completely new avenue also to see the delicate values in our world. Mm-hmm. For example, peony, how you call it? Is it peon? Yeah, the, peony. The, we would say peony. Peony, yeah, the full mm-hmm. of flower. That's the, uh, the queen of flowers in Japanese vocabulary. And it mm-hmm. means that there is an honor and there is a longevity within it, etc., and on the other hand, if you are looking for snow uh, drop, for example, the first coming flower after winter time, so um, it uh, its symbolic meaning is like uh, stamina, you know, <laughs> and sisu, like we say in Finland, <laughs> persistence and happiness also. So I think that uh, whatever you learn, you know, it. It always gives you a new perspective. Like you said, this uh, old academy and the magical world, you know, but it opened up uh, new avenues and uh, that's uh, delightful. Every single yeah, day absolutely. is a good day, day when you can learn something. That's what my father told me when I was young uh, architect student in his office. Every single See? day that you can learn something new is a good day. Yeah, the wisdom, right? The wisdom, yeah. the words, yeah. and are a gift, you yeah. know. So I think going going out with the words of your dad is a perfect way to go out. I want to, you know, this has been as usual, awesome conversation between the two of us. I, I can't thank you enough for for coming back on the show. This is your second appearance on the on the deep dive, and you know, it's always wonderful to be in conversation with you. So thanks for being on the deep dive with me. Thank you, Phillips. And uh, also, I, I have really enjoyed our discussions during these two years. So we keep going on. We keep going on. The on. Third one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Thanks so much. <laughs> Thank you. You can listen to The Deep Dive via Apple Podcasts and our website, thedeepdivepod.com. Download, subscribe, listen, and share. If you like what you're hearing and enjoy what me and the team are putting together, then leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. You can follow me on Twitter via at FarFlungPhil. To all my listeners, wherever you are in the world, I thank you. See you on the other side.